Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you again. If you will open in your Bibles, we're continuing our John series this morning, so open in your Bibles to John chapter 21. And while you turn there, I have some very, very exciting news about another pregnancy here in the church, and that would be Brian and Jessica McCarty. So we are... We are thrilled for those guys, very excited. So keep them in your prayers. And John 21 is where we're gonna be this morning and if you can hang on, we're gonna read through the whole chapter together. Jesus has at this point, as we come into this chapter, he's already made two resurrection appearances, each of them fascinating in their own ways and I trust that this one doesn't disappoint either. There's just wonderful stuff throughout the Gospels. I have so enjoyed this series. I'm sad that it's coming to an end, and I would be giddy if we just started over in John 1 next week. Uh, But I know there's much other gold in our Bibles, and so we can move on somewhere else. But John chapter 21, follow along with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far off from the land but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. 
But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? This is an earlier period. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that your meeting with your people is not simply history. Lord, as it were, we are your people here ready to meet with you, ready to hear from you, ready to be instructed by your word. So feed us. Speak to us, Lord. Change us. Restore us where we need restoring. Transform us, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Nathaniel Bowditch was the epitome of a self-made man. He was born in 1773. Then at the age of 10, family circumstances forced him to leave school and to be a worker for his father. And then a couple of years later, when he was 12 years old, he was an indentured worker, basically a forced apprentice. And he would work very hard for nine years until he was 21 years old, doing bookkeeping for a shipping retailer. And he loved learning, and he hated that he had gotten pulled out of school and his education. And so he determined that no matter how much effort it took, he was going to claw his way into an education, even in the midst of all of his work as a boy. And so he began to study. At age 14, Bowditch began to study algebra. Two years later, he taught himself calculus. He taught himself Latin and French by the age of 20. Later, he would learn Spanish, Italian, and German. He would be an avid reader of Shakespeare. He loved the Bible, read it often. Though only having a formal education through the fifth grade, he would be eventually offered the chair of mathematics at both the University of Virginia and West Point Academy. Before he was 30 years old, he was offered the chair of both mathematics and physics at Harvard. And he declined all of these positions. He's credited as the founder and father of modern maritime navigation. His book, The New American Practical Navigator, first published in 1802 when he was 29 years old, is still carried on board every commissioned U.S. naval vessel, a manual which mariners to this day simply refer to as Bowditch. There's a sailing term that Bowditch used to describe his life, and it was called sailing by ash breeze. And my, I came across this. My wife is reading a book to the kids called Carry On, Mr. Bowditch. It's about Nathaniel or Nat Bowditch. And in in this book, there's an exchange between Nat and, 
and a man named Sam. And Sam says this, a strong man sails by ash breeze. Nat said, how do you sail by ash breeze? Sam grinned. When a ship is becalmed and the wind has died down, she can't move. Sometimes the sailors break out their oars. They'll row another boat ahead of the ship and tow her. Or they'll carry out anchors and heave them over and the crew will lean on the capstan bars and drag the ship up to where the anchors have been heaved over. Oars are made of ash, white ash. So when you get ahead by your own get up and get, that's when you sail by ash breeze. Nat straightened. I like the sound of that. Of course you do, Sam nodded. You're from a long line of seafaring men. A little later in the book, Nat bumps into an older man, who, an Ash Breeze kind of guy, a guy who also wanted to go to Harvard, had to claw his way into an education. This guy was older, and the only difference between Ben and, and Nat was that Ben had been humbled by life. And he came up to Nat, and Nat started talking about life, and Nat told him, basically pounding his chest in this moment, saying, I sail by Ash Breeze. And Ben said, the older man said, You'll get mighty tired of sailing by ash breeze. I think here in John 21, we see really a giant tombstone in this passage. And it's the death of a self-made man. And I, I believe that one of the reasons why brand new Christians who've just heard the gospel seem to have so much wind in their sails is because it's still so fresh to them a forgiveness of all their sins and grace is amazing and they want to sing and dance and they want to tell the whole world about it, right? And I think one of the reasons why older Christians can tend to be very weary and worn is because at some point in the Christian life, we forgot the good news. We didn't cultivate an affection for the beauty of our forgiveness, At some point, we transitioned into ash breeze Christianity where we thought, you know, the gospel is the way into the front door, but from here on, I whip out the oars and I work my way into the mature Christian life. Self-sufficient people must have John 21 experiences. And hopefully, as as we look through this passage and see how it unfolds, in the gospel account, it's gonna leave its mark on us as well. So let's walk through this. Peter and these seven men are right there at the beginning of chapter 21, and there's a reunion in the works. Jesus is about to reunite for the third time with these particular disciples. Some of them he may have seen already, others he hasn't. And so he comes to them in this passage, and it's, it's dark, it says it's early morning, and, and Peter is involved here. We see him right in verse three. You know, he's an easy target. We harp on Peter a lot uh, because he's, he's easy to harp on. He sticks his foot in his mouth. He does things that are, he, let's say it this way. He's a leader, but his leadership is not always properly directed. Right, he, he's hard to harness, but he's got obvious influence 
and leadership. I mean, he's the kind of guy that if he came into a room, he would intimidate everybody, he would run the show. If he was in this room, he would be in charge. He probably rarely, rarely walked into a room where he didn't become the guy who was in charge. He intimidated people, he spoke his mind, he spoke everybody else's mind, but they were too chicken to say it. And he says some, some of the gutsiest stuff to Jesus. You know, who else among the disciples, when Jesus says, I'm gonna wash your feet, says, I know you won't. <laughs> and then later on, he says, I'm going to the cross, and he says, I know you won't. I mean, this, is, this is a guy, for all of his warts and everything, he's a bold guy, he speaks his mind, he's got influence, and so, not surprisingly, in verse three, when he says, I'm going fishing, they say, we'll come along. For an all-night fishing trip and and his influence is not only there but it's in the fact that they're out there all night long and these guys don't dock the boat they're there every hour that passes is saying this was a dumb idea but they stay in the boat with peter so peter's got leadership game going on here and and i think really as we track through this passage like many gospel accounts this is realistic and and realistic stories have humor in them we can, we can identify at some point with what's going on. You know, here in verse four, just as the day was breaking, so it's still dark outside, the sun's just barely peeking up, Jesus stood on the shore, the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus, and Jesus says, children, do you have any fish? And they say, no, and that's just true. You know, one word responses from fishermen. In a sense, fishing culture hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We, we still go out with uh, Mr. Pete and the fam. We'll go out on the boat and buy you corn and Lake Verret. And I can tell you, this is still what happens. You ask people if they've caught any fish, and they'll give you one word, no or yes. And sometimes they don't even give you an audible response. They'll just nod and move on up to buy you. All right, so this, we're tracking with this. We're from the sportsman's paradise. We got this. We know what this is like. And so then they cast the net, right? They cast the net on the right side. He says, he says, do this. You haven't caught any fish. Cast the net on the right side. And they do it. But they don't know it's Jesus. You, you, you might wonder, why in the world did they do this? They don't know it's the Son of God telling them to do this. A miracle's about to happen. But yet they do what this stranger on the side of the beach asked them to do. But if, if you've been familiar with fishing culture, this is what happens. If you haven't been catching fish all night long, and somebody says with any degree of certainty... Put the net down over there. Throw it over there. There are fish over there. It doesn't have to be Frank Davis. certainly doesn't have to be the son of God. It could be a 13-year-old in a P-Rog, and every engine is going to crank up and head down the bayou to that spot that the kid was pointing at. This is, this is real history. <laughs> and so they throw it, and lo and behold, it's instantly teeming with fish. And in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be the author of this gospel, John himself. The disciple that Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. In many places, John seems to be the better thinker of the two. He's got quicker insight. Peter is quicker to act. John is quicker to think. And so John realizes it's the Lord. Peter goes into the water. And he starts swimming for shore. <laughs> And he's not even thinking about the fact that we just hauled in 153 large fish, the net is almost bursting, and now we got one less set of arms to help us bring this thing in, because Peter's headed toward Jesus on the shore. So then you move forward, the account brings everybody to shore eventually, and there's Jesus, he's already got a fire going. 
Right, the charcoal pit's lit up, and he's right there, and he says, bring the fish. And now we find out that Peter's not just a guy who has leadership and influence. He's freakishly strong. He runs back to the boat. Jesus says, bring the fish you've caught. I've got some of my own. Bring your fish. And Peter runs back to the boat, gets in the boat by himself, grabs the net, 103 large fish, pulls it over the edge of the boat, and drags it ashore by himself. And he comes over to Jesus And here Jesus invites them to eat. He prepares food for them. He serves them. Now this is what I love about the Gospels. There's no other place in our Bibles where we can see Jesus walking on the ground, opening his mouth and speaking to people. We can watch Jesus evangelize. We can watch and listen to transcripts from Jesus counseling, hurting people. We can see Jesus take it on the chin. We can see him debate with religious leaders. We see Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in action. And I love this picture in John because just imagine this. He gives you all the pictures, everything you need to think about. Day is breaking. The sun is coming up. And there's Jesus cooking fish for seven guys. And you wonder, doesn't a resurrected Messiah have better things to do with his time? I mean, if he, think about it. Think about broad mission. If we're on Jesus' staff, if we're thinking kingdom, kingdom. Jesus, all you have to do, let's leave the beach. It's a little private beach. Let's leave and let's get you walking down through Ephesus. Just Just walk. You don't have to say a word. Just walk through Ephesus. And then let's go over somewhere else and let's get you walk through Corinth. And the masses will come to faith. But where is Jesus? He's flipping fish for seven men. Then he he takes them up. He he doesn't want them to get up. He walks around and serves them. He grabs his bread and he passes out the bread. He comes back, he grabs the fish and he passes out the bread the fish. He's serving these men. There's nowhere he would rather be. He loves these men. Jesus is not a pragmatic minister. He is not a kingdom CEO. He loves people. He invests in people. In this reunion, Jesus is embodying yet again what true disciple making looks like. It's slow, it's relational. It involves face-to-face conversations. Often, praise the Lord, it involves food. (laughs) See, Jesus sanctifies fellowship around food. Uh, That's probably why I'm memorizing this verse. I love the truth of what's here. You know what else? It, It has the kind of Give and take and relationship and friendship that can be talking about fishing one second and failures the next. Because that's where Jesus is going to go, right? He's not just going to talk about fishing techniques all day. He's relating to these men. He's investing in this men. And that's a principle for us. God has called everyone here who is a Christian to be a disciple maker. The question is, who are the disciples you're supposed to be making? Where are they in 
in connection with your life and are you making them disciples? Are you investing in them? It's gonna take time, right? Email discipleship, text message discipleship is not the way of the kingdom of God. We need relationships. Your kids, that's your discipleship group. First of all, if you're a parent, they need time, they need investment, they need you to draw them out, they need you to talk about fishing, they need you to talk about failures. Our, our disciples, the people we're investing in need time. The kids around your life that you're trying to mentor, the single mom who's close to your family that you wanna draw in and care for her, the college student that's close to your family that you draw in, that person needs time, the elderly relative who is lonely right now and would rather die than play another game of bingo. They need time. They need love and care that puts the world on halt, silences the cell phone and says, let's just talk. How you doing? How's your life? We've got exemplary servants in the church who do this. I could list off so many. They said logics. I always think of this logics when I read passages like this because their care for people is the stuff of legend in this church. To get into their living room is to feel deeply cared for. You know, they practically give you the key to the house. Regina Bow has learned how to pick locks and she just comes in and shows up and opens their refrigerator and and enjoys fellowship with them. It's a wonderful thing. You know, we've got guys, we've got people like Kurt Roberts and, and Evan May who serve the youth group. You know what, that's mission. The Zephyrs game happened last night. You think Evan really was wild about watching the Zephyrs play baseball? I know Evan. Evan's interested in all kinds of things. Watching the Zephyrs play baseball probably isn't one of them. It's not like he was thinking if there was no event and he's all by himself and nobody wants to do anything with Evan that night, I doubt he's thinking, you know what? I'm dying to go to a Zephyr's game. <laughs> you know what he was there for? For your kids. Amen. If your kids are in the youth group, the reason he was there is he loves your kids and he wants to come alongside you and care for your kids. That's mission. That's Jesus kind of disciple making. Being around them, eating a hot dog, talking about life, sharing experiences. Jesus, though, he has an agenda. This isn't just to eat fish. He wants this to go somewhere. By the end of this exchange, Jesus wants to restore Peter. But for that to happen, Peter's gonna have to reckon with reality. And Jesus is gonna have to ask some hard questions. Peter had to be feeling awkward, don't you think? He had to be thinking, when's, when's the bomb going to drop? Their last conversation was also transcripted for, for us. Their last personal interaction, Peter to Jesus, Jesus back to Peter, didn't go very well. Here's what it sounded like. Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Scholars think that that might be more helpfully translated, fail completely. Your faith may not totally fail because you're going to get worked over, Peter. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And you know what Peter did when he heard that word? He sloughed it off. 
He didn't believe Jesus. He sloughed it off. He said, newsflash, Jesus. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. A few verses later, we find out how things go south for Peter, and we catch up almost at the end of his denials, and it says in verse 60, but Peter said, I do not know what you are talking about. He's denying Jesus and the knowledge of Jesus. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine how piercing Christ's eyes must have been in that moment? And Peter remembered, instantly remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And then there's Mark's account of the resurrection. And Mary Magdalene and some of the others, they come to the tomb. And an angel greets them and says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus but he's not here. See the place where he was laid. He is not here. He is risen. Go tell his disciples and what? Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter Jesus wants to meet them in Galilee. Now here they are in Galilee. Imagine those women leaving the angel, coming to where the disciples were. There's Peter looking like he's got a cloud over his head, dejected, can't even look anybody in the face. And all the disciples and, and these women come up and they say, we saw an angel. The Lord is risen. He wants to meet you guys in Galilee. Peter, he mentioned you by name. Can you imagine what Peter's thinking? as he makes his way to Galilee and as he pushes his fish around the plate, wondering, when are we gonna talk about whatever it was that Jesus asked for me to come here? He's waiting for this. Here they are and they push their plates aside and Jesus looks right through Peter and he says, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter always thought he was a cut above the rest. He used that language. He, di he distanced himself from the other disciples. The others weren't nearly as devoted, as bold, as committed to Jesus. He, unlike everybody else, would go all the way to the death. Yet dismiss all these guys. I'll stay here and fight with you. Peter saw himself that way. If persecution took the wind out of the sails of the Christian mission, Peter would throw an anchor and heave it out there and pull his way through the ocean to continue to be faithful to Jesus. He was a, an ash breeze Christian. He knew how to work the oars and wrestle his way through. The problem is Peter was out of touch with reality. I, I think if we hooked... Peter up to a lie detector test, I think he would pass. You know, when he said, I'll go with you to the death, I don't think he was inside really saying, I actually won't, but I'm just talking big. I think Peter thought, Jesus, I really love you. I really won't abandon you. I'm strong. I'll be strong with you. I'll hold on. He had, he was not in touch with reality. Look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. Those like myself whose imagination far exceeds their obedience. Huh. 
are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions far higher than any that we have really reached. If we describe what we have imagined, we may make others and make ourselves believe that we have really been there. You know, the sad thing is, the people who need to hear that quote are thinking of other people when they read it. (laughs) There are probably many people in this room who are dangerously assuming way too much about your spiritual strength. Other people can't handle situations that you can. You can go into certain settings and you can enjoy certain relationships that other people couldn't do because you're strong. You can resist temptation. You can work the oars. You've seen your muscles glistening in the sun as you've worked through spiritual change. The problem is you're blind to the reality that your heart is prone to wander like the rest of us. You are as prone to pride and self-sufficiency and independence, not realizing, apart from him, you can do nothing. We read verses like, let he who stands take heed lest he fall, and three names come to mind. None of them are our own. You see the dangerous assumption there? We never say this, but when we close our lives off to other people to keep them from knowing us, to keep them from hearing us confess our sins, our weaknesses, to keep them from asking us how they can pray for us, that keep us from asking for people to pray for us, all those things, when we do that, we wouldn't say it with these words, but our hearts are making a loud statement. I sail by ash breeze. I'm strong. I can do this. Christ can trust me with this. When the winds die down and things get hard, out come the spiritual oars and I sweat my way to victory. Famous last words. Famous last words. In reality, the self-made man doesn't die once and it's over. And if we speak in a way that says, Yeah, I really fought pride last year. Really fought lust. As though that battle has been decisively won sometime in the past, we are in deep trouble. Deep trouble. Because we're ignorant of of the self-deception that works in our own hearts. C.S. Lewis said, if a man doesn't think he's conceited, then he is very conceited indeed. We're blind. Why does Jesus ask these questions in verse 15 through 17? Is he trying to guilt Peter into change? You know how we can do that in accountability meetings? We're tired of meeting with somebody and we say, you know what? If I really come down hard on him, then maybe he'll get a new incentive to obey Christ. And that new incentive will be, I don't want to hear that accountability partner rail on me like that again. Right? That's not, Jesus is not trying to guilt him into it. He's not trying to do that sort of thing. Jesus was showing Peter how to fight pride. He's saying to Peter, you know how you fight against pride? By dealing and reckoning with reality in the presence of God. 
by looking at your life against the mirror of God's word and God's standards. And when the mirror of God's word looks us in the face, if we're honest, we see things that convict us. That cause, You're not gonna get in a staring contest with God's word and hold on. You're gonna lose every time. Every time you stare into the mirror of God's perfect ways and his calling for your life and my life, every time, You play chicken with the word, you lose, you look away. His word stares right through us. The glory of it is, at the end of these piercing questions that Jesus asks to Peter, Peter finally knows. He's finally tuned in to real reality. I'm not a spiritual superhero. I'm not all that, spiritually, I'm weak. For all of his leadership gifting, all of his influence, all of his physical strength and athleticism, for all those things, when the moment was tough and when the trial came, Peter denied Jesus in front of a schoolgirl by a fire, a stone's throw away from Jesus. That's the reality. And you know what happened? It said in the text, that he looked at Christ, they saw each other, and he went out and wept bitterly. And you know what was happening while he was weeping bitterly? He was being sifted like wheat. He was being humbled. That's my guess. My guess is that the reason Jesus had the angel call Peter by name is because of that precise reason. God's messenger said, Ask for Peter by name. What that says to us is Jesus always initiates reconciliation. Grace always comes first. Grace always comes first. The winds of grace have been blowing since Christ finished his work on the cross. And here's our call as Christians is to so saturate our hearts with the gospel with the good news of forgiveness that we constantly hear and feel the winds, the whipping of the winds of the grace of God moving us toward Christ, not away from Christ, even when we fail, moving us toward Christ. This passage is the death knell of self-sufficiency in Ashbury's Christianity. Not only does Jesus deal in this way in order to cause Peter to reckon with reality. He does something else that's staggering. It's easy to miss it. Imagine, imagine your ministry is with Jesus, right? You've been called aside, 12 men. Jesus prayed all night. He wakes up and then he comes back and he selects 12 men out of the masses. He chooses 12. You're one of them. Not only that, there's this, this little group of three guys that continually show up throughout the Gospels, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Jesus was with Peter, James, and John. These three, they were like his inner circle. It was like these were the sort of covenant group leaders of Jesus that helped care for the other guys, influence the other guys. And Peter was in that kind of upper class of people who were caring and exerting influence and leadership into other people's lives. And, and you honestly think, 
I would go to the death for Jesus. I am spiritually strong. And then you fail miserably and play the coward. And you see Jesus in that moment. And then Jesus dies. And then he rises. And an angel comes and through these friends who come up to you, the angel makes it clear. He doesn't just want the disciples. Jesus wants to see you, Peter. Can you imagine how you would be thinking? Here's how I would be thinking. I tend to think about this anytime I'm called in for a meeting. (laughs) But in this case, in this case, can you imagine? Peter, Peter must be thinking, I'm in for the biggest rebuke of my life. I have totally blown it. And in light of my elated statements about my loyalty and allegiance to Jesus, this is just, just could not get worse. And Jesus doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't say bygones, be bygones, it's water under the bridge, any of that stuff. Jesus looks him in the eye and he asks him piercing questions about Peter's allegiance and he graciously and forthrightly draws you out and he asks three times, one to correspond to every denial. You denied him three times, I'm gonna ask you three times, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my lambs. Do you love me? And it grieved, the text says, it grieved and saddened Peter. Peter's gotta be going lower into humility every time Jesus says it again. I just answered it and Jesus is for some reason asking me again and he feels like at some point this third question is asked and he just couldn't get any lower. Utterly humiliated, feeling like a worm on the ground and then Jesus opens his mouth and Peter realizes Jesus has said, feed my lambs. Feed your lambs? Jesus, I wondered when you called me by name, I wondered if I would even retrieve our friendship. If you would even call me a disciple and let me hang around with the guys who stood with you or with those who didn't outright explicitly reject you. You're still gonna let me minister? You're still gonna call me into your mission? I'm still one of your boys? Can you imagine the sound of the winds that were whipping into Peter's sails at that moment? Ash breeze is gone. Peter's been forgiven. Peter's not only been forgiven, Jesus doesn't just tolerate Peter. He's called him. He's recommissioned Peter. He's recalled him. He's reordained Peter to the task. And Jesus goes on in verse 18. And he says, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus indicates here that, G- that Peter's life will end in martyrdom. His ministry will go all the way to a cross of his own. 
But when Jesus tells him about this grave aspect of Peter's future, he doesn't add anything about roosters, sifting, almost total failure of faith. None of that foreboding drama of Peter's failure. Because I believe the restorative power of the forgiving grace of God in Peter's heart will be wind in his sails until the day that he dies. He will never lose sight of this encounter. He will never forget what Jesus said at the beach. He will never forget it. You know what we see here? We see gospel logic. Gospel logic. Gospel logic, if we borrowed a phrase from the gospels, says this. He who has been forgiven much loves much. You know what gospel logic also says? It goes further than he who has been forgiven much loves much. It goes on to say this. He who remembers actively how much he's been forgiven continues to love much. The gospel continues to provide the breezes of the grace of God to blow in our sails so that we don't feel like it's oars and sweat and heaving anchors. It's amazing grace. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far and grace will blow me all the way to heaven. That's how glorious the gospel is and we lose sight of that as Christians. We get older in the faith and we think there's some other new ground to conquer theologically and we forget the simple truths that saved us. That electrified our hearts on our own private beaches with Jesus. We forget all of that and we think there's some other way to make spiritual progress other than, of course, it can't be the gospel. That's what got me in the door. No, it's what keeps the winds pushing our sails forward. It keeps our hearts amazed by the mercy of God. We need the gospel to leverage its power so we don't feel the need to sail by ash breeze. Verse 21, Peter gets the impression that he's gonna have to die, but the author of John's gospel, John, the son of Zebedee, who was there on the beach, John wasn't. And Peter asked a question about that. Peter said to him, Lord, what about him? You told me that I'm gonna die, I'm gonna stretch out my hands and go somewhere I don't wanna go, and I'm gonna end up dying But what about him? You didn't say anything about him. And and you know what Jesus says? Look at this. (laughs) If it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. You know, this could be a whole sermon. Uh, I think the principle is, is at least this. Those who are called to tend to the well-being of others, to disciple others, can often become so obsessed with those others be they friends, uh, younger people in the church, your kids, so obsessed with their spiritual well-being that we neglect to be disciples. And here's here's where we can ask you all to pray for us, to pray for us as pastors. Pray for your covenant group leaders, teenagers, pray for your parents, that while tending to your spiritual well-being, they don't neglect to follow Jesus themselves, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, 
to be examples to those that we're discipling. As John closes this gospel account in John chapter 21, he, he still has just one book left to write in the New Testament. And that's it. Once he writes this next book, the New Testament closes. That's the book of Revelation. He's gonna write that right after the Gospel of John. This is the second to last book written in our Bibles. He is a much older man. He is, as the text implied, the last man standing. All his friends on the beach, they're all dead. They've been dead for years. Peter died 20 years ago. Crucifixion. He didn't deny. Paul died about the same time. He was beheaded. Many have fallen in the line of action. And there's John standing, writing on the Isle of Patmos. He's in exile. When John lived the moment of John 21, he may well have been 21. He was a young man. Tradition has it that he was probably the youngest of all the disciples that were called. That's probably why he outran Peter to the tomb. Peter knew he couldn't keep up, didn't want to blow out a knee, you know. <laughs> yeah, couldn't pass that one up. Now some, some 50 years later, 50 years later, under divine inspiration, he looks back on that moment at the beach and he remembers that day and how history unfolded and how Peter had wind in his sails all the way to the end. He remembered that fondly. And not many years, though, before Peter was martyred, he wrote two letters of his own. He wrote these letters to the church and they show how deeply impacting this beach encounter was on Peter. Read through, I would encourage you, Read through First and Second Peter, listening for the language of the beach, and you'll see it all over the place. The beach transformed Peter's life. And here's what he says, close of his life. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, would he have paused and said, it's amazing, remember? I remember the moment where he called me back to ministry. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God. It's not an original command. You know where he got that? From the beach. Feed my sheep, Peter. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Peter comes to the end of his life and he says, next generation, feed his sheep. Tend his lambs. Disciple those kids. Make disciples of the nations. He goes on to say, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. I didn't have this. I learned this the hard way. For God opposes the proud. God, if you will, sifts the proud. He opposes the proud. He brings the proud to their knees, but he gives grace to the humble. What is he urging these pastors to do? To feed the sheep, to feed the flock, he doesn't adopt Christ's exact language. Did you notice that? 
He doesn't say, feed my sheep. As though it's Peter's church, as though he's, he's the big, bad leader, right? Peter had already struggled with that. He doesn't struggle with that anymore. He's fought and continued to fight pride with the gospel so that he comes to this point at the end of his life and he says, feed his flock. They're his sheep. That's the flock of God. Feed them. Shepherd them. For God gives grace to the humble. Grace for what? Look at the context of 1 Peter 5. Grace for mission. Grace for lamb feeding, disciple making. This is, this is the breeze of God. 1 Peter 5 is the breeze of God enabling faithful pastoring, faithful parenting, faithful endurance and suffering, faithful mentoring and discipling, it's grace that restores us in our Peter-like moments of life. It's grace that says you're forgiven. And what's more than that, I've got something for you to do. You're on mission. That's the good news. We've been restored to fellowship with God by the work of Christ, by the grace of God. And he says to us, not only after your failings can I restore you again and again and again and I call you back to the mission because I work through broken vessels. Frankly, he's got no other vessels to work with. It's all he's got. Those who abandon self-sufficiency in ash breeze Christianity receive three things. One, Grace from God to take the needed time to relate with those we're called to care for. Two, grace to reckon with the reality of prideful independence in our personal lives. And three, grace to be restored again to the task after we've stumbled. In a word, God gives grace to die to the self-made man. Thank you.